Hey guys, Jules here, and thank you so much for listening to our very first episode of Mystery Through Manners. Today's episode begins the first of our mini-series on Catholic fiction, and we figured to begin our storytelling podcast, it made sense to start with a season on storytellers. (laughs) So to begin, I wanted to start with a conversation I had with two absolutely incredible women. Hi, I'm Marcy Stockman. I'm the founder of Well Red Mom. And I'm Susan Severson. I'm a contributor to Well Read Mom. About six years ago, Marcy, along with the help of Susan and some others, started an international book club for Catholic moms called the Well Read Mom. The group mainly reads classic works of fiction, uh, you know, from the dark short stories of Flannery O'Connor to the brilliance of Jane Austen. Um, But we'll get more into the history behind this organization in a bit. But first, I wanted to begin with them because of a story that Marcy told me about something that happened to her at a recent conference she held for her organization. And the story goes like this. After, you know, a couple of days of listening to talks about the importance of daily reading and why we should be reading good literature, a woman approached Marcy and she was a little bit disappointed. And she told Marcy in so many words, you know, yeah, yeah, this all sounds good. But if I do find time to read, I'm just going to read the Bible. Now, of course, (laughs) Marcy agrees that it's important to read the Bible. But here was Marcy's reaction after this little encounter. But anyway, actually, after she left, I sort of had a crisis because I thought, Lord, you know, is this leading people astray? I, should I even be doing this? This is the story of the case for fiction. So today we begin a series on the rich and beautiful history of American Catholic fiction. Our country has a very rich literary tradition, and Catholics are certainly no exception to that. But here's the thing. You would be amazed (laughs) at how many times I have had almost the identical conversation with my own friends that Marcy had with this woman at the conference. Now, on the one hand, I totally get it. We are busy. Our lives are filled with work and children and our marriages and ministries and yada, yada, yada. But there is something unique and beautiful about the experience of reading fiction daily and how that experience can change your life. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk to experts from all over the country about making the case for fiction. Now, let's begin with this guy. Hi, my name is Nick Repatrizone. Um, I write for Rolling Stone, uh, The Atlantic, Commonweal, uh, The Millions, and The Paris Review, and I teach creative writing at the College of New Jersey. I reached out to Nick because of an article I came across over a year ago in The Atlantic called The Exorcist and the Lost Art of Great Catholic Storytelling. Now, this article is a great read, and I wanted to ask Nick about why he wrote the article and more specifically, what is unique for the Catholic experience when it comes to reading and writing fiction? Well, I think fiction can do things that theological writing or theological arguments can't do, primarily because it's not expected to do any of those things. 
Now, Nick makes a point in the article to distinguish between what we might think of when we hear the phrase Christian fiction and what he means by fiction from an authentic Catholic perspective. He wrote, Catholic writers knew the important difference between devotional literature, formulaic, full of heavy-handed parables and cliches, and honest stories about God. The former is storytelling bound by dogma, and the latter storytelling informed by theology. I, I just, I absolutely love that phrase. <laughs> I love that quote so much, but I wanted him to expand on it a little bit. Um, I think Christian fiction sometimes confuses uh, the end with the journey or mixes them up a little bit. Um, I think the idea of positivity in fiction, as you brought up, is a stylistic kind of aesthetic taste point. I mean, I would tell readers or I would ask readers to think that they know the Christ story, the Christ narrative, the thing in which Christians believe. They know that there's an arc to that storyline. Um, it is highly dramatic. Um, it is highly filled with struggle. Uh, and I think a lot of times people who believe in Christ and find him to be the center of their lives sometimes fast forward to that point in fiction. In other words, authentic fiction for the Catholic experience does not attempt to gloss over or sanitize the more difficult parts of the Christian journey. Instead, the Catholic author typically has another objective in mind. Not for the purpose of conversion, but to bring them into the conversation, to um, make them see in the fiction of Catholic writers that there are things that maybe transcend a certain dogma or belief. So you all may be asking yourself, what then is the goal? What is the objective of the Catholic author? And perhaps more importantly, what is the reader supposed to get out of the experience of reading fiction? Yeah, my name is Ralph Wood. I teach at Baylor University here in Waco, Texas, where I'm um, what's called University Professor of Theology and Literature. This, by the way, is Dr. Ralph Wood. He's taught for over 45 years and holds joint appointments in English and religion department at Baylor University. He works specifically in the great text program there, and he's just, frankly, a delightful human being. Now, Dr. Wood, like Nick, also believes it's important to distinguish between the work of art and the work of the church. Art and evangelism are two separate categories that really must not be conflated or collapsed between the two. Evangelism, of course, is about the, um, the work of the church and bringing souls and bodies, which is to say lives, into the kingdom of God. And it must have its, therefore, its own integrity. Evangelism must. It must not take um, shortcuts. It can't make sentimental appeals. It can't uh, resort to cheap slogans and tricks unless it does violence to the kingdom itself and risks the wrath of God. Art, by contrast, uh, is not the work of the church um, and must not be confused as such. Uh, it is the work of the imagination that's trying to give us a fresh vision of the created world so that we see and hear and, and touch and taste and even smell things differently. Um, and therefore, it does not have as its end uh, the conversion of others. And so its, its methods, insofar as it can be, the, used by the church are always indirect. This means that the experience of reading good fiction can and should bring us to the gospel in more concrete and even creative ways. 
In fact, in many cases, a beautiful work of fiction doesn't have to be Catholic or Christian at all and can still bring the readers to a closer participation in the life of the faith. Here's Dr. Wood again. You could have the perfect Christian novel without a single Christian reference or allusion. This sentiment was echoed with almost every single person I spoke to about this topic. Think about this for a minute. Devout Christians, experts in their field, most of them Catholics, arguing that sometimes the very best Catholic writing has no mention of the faith at all. Take this guy, for example. My name is Bernardo Paricio. I'm the founder of Dappled Things founded it in 2005. Now, Bernardo has also written for Salon and The Millions and many, many other publications. But I wanted to speak with him because just over a decade ago, he founded a literary and arts journal for Catholics called Dappled Things. Now, I promise we will be speaking about Dappled Things in later episodes. And I also promise you will want to know more about just the wonderful work produced by these very talented writers at the magazine. But for this episode, I just wanted to highlight something Bernardo said about the work of fiction. I mean, we are embodied beings. That's one of the key things that that makes Catholic theology and, and the Catholic worldview in general particular, which is that we're not just up in the realm of the spirit, right? We we're embodied. And so if we really believe that the world is meaningful and points us up towards God, then we should be able to see that at the level of the concrete. In other words, like previously mentioned by Nick and Dr. Wood, fiction takes abstract theological and moral concepts and brings them into the level of the concrete. This enables the reader to enter into the mysteries of those concepts more fully. Here's Bernardo again. We often focus, and I think we often lose focus, when we are only looking at developing our faith life as a question of instruction or catechesis, like learning what are the truths of the faith, learning maybe apologetics and how to defend them, and then, let's say, ruling our lives with, you know, trying to kind of build ourselves up into virtue machines of some sort, and, you know, we we do good things when we avoid bad things, and we often miss the mark if we don't build ourselves up to be able to really appreciate and enjoy what is lovable and not enjoy what is unlovable. Fictional stories can teach us theological principles in ways that apologetics or other works of theology simply can't. We Christians only need to turn to the many, many examples of the parables to understand this point. Uh, Nick echoed these same sentiments. And I think the sense of truth that fiction writers, uh, specifically Catholic fiction writers, um, are able to achieve is when they don't, we don't realize that we're learning something about the faith or we're seeing it dramatized until the end. And then it kind of becomes clear to us that the writer has made it so authentic that um, they speak to those sort of eternal and established truths. So what if fiction is changing our lives more than we even realize. This thought kind of kept coming back into my head throughout these interviews. And if I'm being honest, it popped up whenever I actually sat down to read a good work of fiction since these interviews. And in particular, I thought of these women. Hi, I'm Marcy Stockman. I'm the founder of Well Read Mom. And I'm Susan Severson. I'm a contributor to Well Read Mom. 
Now, one of the reasons I have to be honest here, <laughs> I've thought a lot about the Well-Read Mom during this series is because for over three years now, I've actually belonged to a Well-Read Mom group. Um, obviously, besides the joy that comes with friendship and strong community life, I've also found that my life becomes enriched by these books, these beautiful books that this organization has chosen. This, as it turns out, was at the very heart of Well-Read Mom's founding mission. In the spring of 2012, I was doing some talks, uh, and I just called it Well-Read Mom. And I, I went around to various mothers' groups, and I wanted to find out what they were reading. I drove home sad every time because I understood that women weren't reading, and the number one reason was they were too busy and most women anyway, or they didn't know where to start. They didn't know, they didn't have a good experience of reading, for example, in high school literature. And at that same time, uh, my daughter and daughter-in-law were new mothers. And one day my daughter Beth called and she said, mom, I'm done with these mothers groups. I, I can't do it anymore. We just want to talk about our kids and diapers and binkies. She said, isn't there a place after college where women can get together and really talk about the questions of life? things that really matter. And so it was at this point that my own sadness of women not reading quality literature, myself included, and my daughter's longing to have a place for women to gather, these two things came together. And in the fall of 2012, in my little living room in Crosby, Minnesota, 20 women gathered and we began what was called the Well-Read Mom. Now, the Well-Read Mom is organized into yearly themes. We're currently in the middle of reading the Year of the Pilgrim. <laughs> but the books each year range from geography and time periods and genres. Both Marcy and her fellow founders saw reading fiction as a small way to help reawaken something missing from our sleeping culture. I would say I, was, I heard a story about a pastor and his wife who um, they're Protestant, they studied theology, they studied the Bibles every day. But when they, one day they heard a talk about reading fiction, reading good literature, and they began reading C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia together. And at one point the wife stopped her husband and she said, Tom, she said, something has been missing from our lives and it is the imagination. And women in particular, Marcy argues, have a role to play in this revival of the imagination in culture. And when women read together, the, the fact is everybody reads more. Women are generators of culture. They're builders of culture. We're, we're hidden. We're often hidden away in our homes. But it's, it's a, we're a key player in this, women. These points, of course, echo the sentiments we've heard throughout this episode. There is something about entering into the experience of good fiction that the story itself begins to change our stories, too. Here's Susan, also from The Well-Read Mom, about how fiction can truly change us. Good literature that's seeking truth, seeking beauty, um, it really is something that just corresponds with our hearts. And it, it hits us on a human level, something that hits us on a human level and allows us to have empathy. Um, especially with people who are experiencing something that maybe we've never experienced before. Susan, at one point in our interview, told a story of a young woman she once mentored. And this particular woman wasn't allowed growing up to read many works of fiction for various reasons, um, mainly because certain fiction her parents believed was too destructive or too worldly. Um, but when this particular woman got to college, she found that she couldn't make sense of the world around her. She struggled to apply the theological principles she learned from her upbringing with the reality of the world around her. Here is Susan's take on it. 
because she was ignorant to so many things that I think she could have learned in fiction, then she kind of lost a lot of opportunities to to grow in love, but also to understand that Catholicism, we don't need to be scandalized by reality. Like we can look at everything and make judgments on whether it's good and true um, without being put in this bubble. In fact, reading good fiction, even when it's grotesque or hard, can actually change the very world in which we live and help us to make better sense of it. There are other methods to come to truth. And this is what I realized with fiction. The imagination, which fiction cultivates, especially quality literature, which is rooted in the truth of reality, it conveys to us truth. It's a way to communicate the deepest truth. And because we get a picture in our mind, we can see uh, through a story consequences. We can see how life really works. And so fiction is an important piece. It's something that is often missing from our lives, and yet it's a way to grow in our very person. there you have it. (laughs) The case for fiction, or as best as we can put together for this little episode. But here's the thing. Even I had to go through a bit of a conversion (laughs) through this series, not necessarily in reading the fiction. I've always loved reading fiction. There were many points throughout these interviews where I myself had to be convinced. It almost always had to do with this lady. Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor. Flannery. It's almost like this fresh breath of air for me. Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor, the very woman who is responsible for the name of this podcast, the very person who I just couldn't seem to escape as this podcast came into being. No matter where I looked or who I talked to, the conversation almost always seemed to come back to this one person, Flannery O'Connor. And I have to be honest, listeners, I have a podcast which is inspired by her writings, and I am not even someone who enjoys reading her. (laughs) It took a lot of convincing. So what on earth was so great about this woman that so many experts from all over the country were finally able to convince me the ultimate skeptic? Next time on Mystery Through Manners. Many thanks to my sweet husband, Ryan, for his continued help and guidance. For Kate Beek, whose support was a necessary component to get this podcast off the ground. Thank you to Sean Garrison for the opening music. You can check out Sean's music at his website and buy his album, Exceeding, which is fantastic. Some of the other music we use in this episode is from an incredible band called The Mosleys. I can't stress enough how much you need to check out their music as well. Nick Repetrazone, who we heard from in this episode, is actually coming out with a book on American Catholic fiction in a year or two, so please look out for that. And all of this information and all of the names of all of our interviewees and any important information from their works can be found on our website, mysterythroughmannerspodcast.com. And thank you to the listeners for so graciously spreading the word about our humble little podcast. God bless you. 
and we'll see you next week.